It's a delight to be with you this morning. I, um, I've already met one couple that's brand new today. I'm not going to embarrass them, but it just reminded me that there may be others that have never been to Harvest before. So my name is Ken and Vaughn, and let me just welcome you. I'm really glad you're here. I've got the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders here. And um, also those of you that are joining us online, delighted that you are with us this morning. We are in First Peter, if you want to head that direction, uh, chapter 3. Uh, our habit as a church is to preach through um, books of God's Word. We are in First Peter in a series, and today we come to a peculiar passage in uh, chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. So if you just showed up, first-timer, don't want you to think I just always gravitate towards really hard, obscure texts. That's not the case. It's just where we are. And so you came in for a doozy this morning. Uh, matter of fact, <clears throat> a little disclaimer, I was reading uh, several commentaries this week and learning from some of the guys that I love to learn from, alive and those who are dead, and came across a statement from uh, Martin Luther. He said this is, in his opinion, the most obscure text in the entire New Testament. He said, it's brilliant, but I can't say for, with any certainty what's going on. So I feel like I'm in good company this morning. Um, I know that uh, God's Word is good, and it's all good, and it's important for um, uh, training and training us for righteousness. And uh, this, this passage is no different in that sense. And there's certainly some uh, obscure things in this text that we're going to try to unravel, but there's also some really crystal clear, important, gospel-centric things that we need to grab hold of in our life today. And so with no further ado, if you'd stand to your feet, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22, this is the very Word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. It's the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said... Praise be to God. You may be seated. And so, Father, we come to you um, before a text that is weighty and amazing. And, uh, Lord, uh, in the context of suffering that is part of our human experience, may we be deeply encouraged by your word this morning. And I pray that you would speak not just to our minds but to our hearts and according to your good promise that your word would not return void. We'd ask this morning that you would create new life in us this morning by the power of your spirit working through the power of your word. And as I preach, I pray that I would decrease. I must, Lord Jesus, you must increase. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so reminder, the context is suffering. So I, I don't want to lose that when we get into the weeds of what's going on. The context really of all of 1 Peter is suffering. If, we were, if I were to give you a theme verse of the entire book, I'd probably choose chapter 1, verse 11, which says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours Searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. <clears throat> That's what we get um, 
and the, uh, what the Bible gives us of the life and ministry of Jesus. We see the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory, certainly with his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his establishment and growth of the church, and his coming again. So we get the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. And to be a Christ follower means our lives will take the same pattern, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so I don't want us to lose context of what this letter is about. It's about being sojourners, exiles in this world, realizing that this ain't it. We're not here for the here and now. We're not here to establish our kingdom. We're not here to uh, see how uh, much comfort and security we can establish for ourselves and our families until we die. We are passing through a temporal world on our way to a heavenly citizenship where we will be in the presence of God for all of eternity. Amen? And Peter's saying, we got to live like that. It's just easy, especially in 21st century American Christianity, to be distracted from what is really true and really happening. The kingdom of God is going forth, and we're meant to be ministering agents in it. We're meant to be ambassadors of Christ for the sake of the gospel and the coming kingdom. We're meant to be captivated by that, caught up in that, lost in that, and willing to endure any form of persecution, trial, suffering, anything that comes our way for the glory of Christ, who is establishing his kingdom even now and will ultimately come and reign again, and we will reign with him, and we will be with him in the new Jerusalem where Revelation 22:7 says he will make all things new. We hold tightly to this. Everything in this earthly existence, we can't hold loosely except the gospel. When it comes to our lives and comes to suffering, that's part of it. Now, there's, I want to clarify one thing before we jump into the text. The text is going to talk about suffering for doing good. But let me just acknowledge, we suffer for a lot of reasons on this earth. We suffer because of foolishness, ignorance. We bring about suffering in our lives when we do stupid things. Um, one of my buddies is here with me this morning who uh, spent some summers working on a ranch in Texas. I remember one time being out there and parking a two-ton tractor on a downhill without the emergency brake on. And I uh, took a break to be with my granddad and drink some water. And the next thing I knew, that tractor had rolled through Farmer Brown's fence line and just tore it up. A fence post, broken in half, popping out of the ground. I spent the next three weeks, every morning at sunup, repairing fence. There was suffering in my life because of foolishness. Well, that's true. We're all going to be fools at times. We're going to bring about suffering. There's also suffering that's for sinfulness. That's a promise, and that's the Lord's mercy in our life, that he doesn't just turn us over to ourselves. In the same way you and I discipline our kids, I hope, we don't see them in their sinful, disobedient, rebellious ways and just say, ah, good luck. We love them too much, I hope. We discipline them not because we're embarrassed by them, Uh, Not because we're mad at them, uh, but because we love them enough to know that disobedience is going to bring devastation, consequence, hurt, and obedience is going to bring life and be life-giving, and we want that for you because we love you. God says, I'm going to discipline you as my children. When you sin, um, I will rebuke you, I'll call you out, I'll convict you, I'll chasten you to repentance. If I have a harsh word for my wife... The Lord doesn't leave me alone about that. He brings me to the place of confession and repentance. Otherwise, my marriage would be in a, we've been talking about this the last three weeks, so that's why it's on my mind. Otherwise, it'd be in a, a toxic cycle, and, and um, it would be life-sucking, what's meant to be life-giving. And God doesn't want that. He loves me enough to bring consequence. My wife doesn't want that either. She rebukes me as well. 
so this happens. There's consequence. There's suffering when we're fools. There's suffering when we're sinful. But here's what this text is primarily about. There's also suffering for good. Now, I know we're, not, we're people that aren't good, and there's nothing in us that is good. I, I get it. But Peter's making an argument that even when you're quote-unquote doing everything right, even when you're uh, on a spiritual high, and you're in the Word every morning, you're closer to God than you've ever been, you're pursuing Christ wholeheartedly, you're sharing the gospel, you're fired up about Jesus. Maybe you're serving in a ministry in our church in the community. You're thinking, I've never been this locked into Christ as I am right now. That does not give you some kind of a guarantee that everything in your life will go swimmingly. Matter of fact, it's probably that the opposite is true. You can go ahead and expect, if you are really walking in step with the Lord Jesus, you can probably expect a greater degree of trouble coming your way. You may lose your job. You may get a tough diagnosis. You may experience tragedy. And the knee-jerk reaction of me, of, of most of us in those situations is, where is God? What is he doing right now? How could he let this happen? Uh, we'll pray towards one end, and then the very opposite thing will happen. And we'll say, is God not hearing my prayers? Does he not care? Where is he? And I know you've had this experience. I've had this experience many times, part of the human experience. Here's what you need to know, and then I'm going to extrapolate it from our text and hopefully land the plane with something conclusive. Uh, yes, God knows of your suffering. Just, just, just a few things. I'm going to begin and end with these. Yes, he knows. He's sovereign over it, all of it. I Means he's not up there going, oh, my gosh, how did that happen? He, in his sovereignty, he allows what you're going through. By the way, I know some of you are in, in some dark places. I know that because most of my meetings with most of you, some are just joyous, get to know you, or fun, celebration, what guys are. Most of them are when you're in a real difficult place. That's when most of you reach out. Say some help. Here's what's going on. And a lot of times it's this. It's, man, I'm suffering. I, I don't know, have I done something wrong? I don't know what's going on. I was in a good spot, but there's persecution. There's suffering. There's difficulty. God knows that. He's not left you or forsaken you. He's allowed it. Furthermore, he's promised it. Y'all hear me on that? He's promised suffering. We're the ones that, uh, that get confused. In the next chapter, Peter's going to say, don't be surprised when the fiery trials of the enemy come your way. Matter of fact, the closer you're walking to Christ, wouldn't it make sense that that's when Satan would turn his arrows towards you? Don't be surprised. By the way, again, American Christianity is hard sometimes to see through the precise context of the Scripture. I wouldn't have to give this preamble in their day. To come to Christ meant to risk your very life. Our evangelism tactics are often trying to kind of soften the cost of following Christ and tell, you know, generally saying, come to Jesus, everything gets better. In their day, it was come to Jesus and give up your life. You know, very likely, literally. You gotta be willing to die. There, Nero's burning Christians as torches on the side of the road. You want in? That's a that's a you don't you don't take on Christ without understanding what you're taking on. A life of being persecuted by a world that's alien to God, that's offended by the gospel, that we are sinners in need of a savior, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so we must repent of our sinful, selfish desires to build our own kingdom, 
surrender our lives to Christ, his lordship, his kingship, and give our lives to building his kingdom. It's offensive to people in darkness. But God knows where you are. He's allowed your suffering. He promises your suffering. Jesus said in Matthew 24, all the nations are going to hate you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. He says in John, uh, in this world, you will have trouble. And again, it happens to us and sometimes we go, wait, what's going on? Exactly what Jesus said would go on. Exactly the result of of the fall, our sinfulness that separates of God and brings all kinds of consequences and trouble in a fallen world that God is doing something redemptively in and through our suffering to make us more like his son Jesus and to reveal the truth of his gospel to the world. But you will have trouble. And so will I. He knows it. He's over it. He promised it. He purposes it. And he's with you in it. Let me just, I'm about to get to our text, but let me just read to you uh, what I think is a good thing for us to keep in mind as we work through this text in 1 Peter. Romans 8. Don't ever let Romans 8 get too far from you when you're in suffering. Romans 8, we hear that if we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we are going to suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. That's verse 17. Do you hear me? You're going to suffer with Christ. What did Peter say? Sufferings of Christ, subsequent glories. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, Paul goes on to write in Romans, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul never minimizes suffering. Peter never minimizes, minimizes suffering. It's real, it hurts, it's hard, but it doesn't compare to the glory to come. That's our hope in the midst of suffering. And he goes on to say, you're not going to be alone. He says, the Spirit's interceding for you, even when you don't know how to intercede for yourself. I literally had a buddy call me this week and say, hey, I'm in such a hard spot, I can't pray anymore. And you know what I told him? I said, well, you know what I would do? I would get on your knees and groan. Probably sounded like strange advice. But in Romans 8, we see that the Spirit will interpret those groanings. And he will go to bat and intercede for us before the very throne room of grace. And he will be near and dear to your heart even when you don't have the words to express your pain to a God who already knows it. Where is God in your suffering? The same place he was where he turned over his only begotten son to suffer death in your place and for your sin. He knows. And he goes on to say, and we know that for those who love God, by God's grace, that's us. All things work together for good. Christians got to know this. For those who are called according to his purpose, he's going to take your suffering and my suffering, and he's not going to waste one ounce of it. He's going to use it for your good, my good, and his glory. The good of the gospel. And so in this zillionth of a moment of your internal existence, your suffering serves an eternal purpose. Amen? Don't be myopic. Don't just be consumed in your suffering. Be consumed with Christ who suffered on our behalf to the bitter end that we might take willingly a measure of suffering so that he be glorified in and through it now and forever. We've already learned in Peter our sufferings are temporal. They're not going to overtake us. They're here for only a short time. And they give way to glory. So what do we say? Paul says in Romans 8, if God's for us, who can be against us? You need to know in the midst of your moment where you wonder where God is, he's with you and he's for you. 
Maybe someone's bringing on your suffering. Maybe you're being persecuted. Well, if he's for you, who can be against you? Who will give any charge against God's elect? Who condemns? Who separates us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, with that as the backdrop, look with me at 1 Peter 3. Verse 17, which preempts our immediate text, says, It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Know this, you will suffer. Suffering for foolishness, suffering for sin, suffering for doing good. In a world that's alien to God and the gospel, in a culture, and we're seeing this, we're seeing this in a new way, right now before our eyes. As the cultural powers that be, to an ever-increasing degree, revile Christ and revile Christianity, we're not meant to be surprised. There may be a greater measure of suffering that comes our way for doing good. Well, the New Testament says, suffer well. Don't run. Don't shortcut. You stand firm. The Lord knows, he allows, he purposes, he promises, he uses, he won't leave you or forsake you. Stand firm. Better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. By the way, something kind of funny that I read, a story that's supposed to be true of um, John Wesley, a circuit rider going from town to town in the English community sharing the gospel, and he literally stopped, he was convicted of something, stopped, got off his court, uh, court, got off his horse with his traveling uh, companion, the, uh, the buddy of his watched him get on his knees, and so he got on his knees. He wondered what they were stopping for, and, and John Wesley prayed, God, it has been three days since anyone has persecuted me in the name of Christ. I am afraid that I, might have, I may have fallen out of your favor if in any way I have compromised your gospel for my comfort. Forgive me. His buddy's going, What? And he says, may the ire of Satan return to me as I seek to obey you. I have never prayed anything like that. <laughs> and uh, as, it, as the story goes, about that time, a, uh, someone was riding on horseback the other direction, recognized John Wesley, got off his horse, cursed him, and threw a rock at him. And John Wesley stood up and said, hallelujah, the Lord's favor has returned to me. And his buddies just dumbfounded, and they continued on. Um, The closer you walk with Jesus, the more suffering you should expect. Okay? It's promised, it's coming. Make it suffering for doing good. Now watch this in verse 18. First thing you know, Christ also suffered. You are really following in the footsteps of Christ when you have laid your life down. What was Jesus' invitation to the gospel? Deny yourself. That's suffering. Take up your cross, that's an instrument of suffering, and follow me. The ministry of Christ was one laying his life down for the will of the Father and the sake of the elect. So we follow in step. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Uh, Four things right here, and and that which follows, which is exceedingly obscure, That which we have here is exceedingly clear. Beginning and end, we're going to be real clear. In the middle, it's going to be fuzzy. Right here, very clear. You need to know this. Four things that Christ suffered for sins, not the sins of his own. He had no sin of his own. 
which is why his suffering is sufficient for our sin. If he had had his own sin, he could have only paid off the wages of sin, which are death. But he, born of a virgin, lived a life, a life of complete obedience to the law. He is in every way suitable, qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. He can take our place in judgment. There's a payment due for your sin and mine. And that payment is death. It's eternal separation from God. Unless that debt is paid by another who's capable to pay it, who takes the bullet for you, who takes your place in judgment. And the good news of the gospel, by the way, there's, there's nothing more terrifying than enduring the wrath of God forever. There's nothing more terrifying than enduring the wages of your sin. And so there's no more glorious aspect to the good news of the gospel than Christ endured for you. He literally took the wrath of God upon himself. Psalm 22, the Messianic Psalm where Messiah to come will holler out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by the Father. He wore on his crown the thorns that represent the curse. He endured the wrath of God, that which is most terrifying for you and I to contemplate. He endured it so that we never have to. He died in our place and for our sin. First thing you need to know is Christ died for sins, yours and mine. So that you and I can hold fast to the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're in suffering, going, has, has God forsaken me? Has he condemned me? The answer is a resounding no. He condemned Christ so that you must never be condemned. He'll allow you to suffer. He'll purpose it for his glory and our good, but he will not leave you nor forsake you. Christ endured so that we don't have to. Second thing is, he died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. His death was a substitutionary atonement for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So here's Jesus, lives up to the standard of the righteous requirement of the law of God. He's righteous, and he literally becomes the curse that we might literally become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther said this is the great exchange that he is humiliated to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be exalted to the right hand of God through Christ. His death was a substitute atonement for our sin. And it says, thirdly, it was once, once and for all, this is the book of Hebrews, that there is no further sacrifice required for your and my salvation. It's not his death plus our obedience. Amen? It's not his death plus our baptism. We're about to talk about baptism. It's not his death plus anything. We trust on the death of Christ is an all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Jesus himself on the cross said, it is finished. Nothing further is required. You trust on me and you are assured of salvation. Matter of fact, you receive my Holy Spirit who will be alive in you as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
once and for all, he paid the price. You and I are not living lives down here trying to earn God's favor. It's been earned fully in Christ. And we understand that he took our place in judgment and what we have received, the righteousness of God, through him who is righteous, who took the curse on our behalf, we desire to be obedient because of who he is and what he has done for us. We're not striving for God's approval, we're striving from God's approval. 2 Corinthians 5 says we're compelled to live for Christ in light of what he's done for us. And fourthly, it says here, he suffered once for sins, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He put a bridge down over the chasm that separates us from the very presence of God. He laid his life down that we might walk across and be rightly reestablished in the very presence of God in an Edenic paradise where Adam and Eve started walking with God in the cool of the morning before sin came crashing in, before there was separation and longing and suffering. God spends from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20, 99% of your Bible, he spends telling the story of how he fixes everything that went wrong through the sending of a Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of Man and Son of God, to make right what went wrong, that we might be reestablished as his people, and he is our God in his presence. And now he wipes every tear from our eye. Suffering's over one day. No more sin one day. No more pain one day. This day we endure for the sake of Christ and the elect. And so understand right out the gate, Christ suffered in our place for our sin. Once and for all, righteous for the unjust, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, he continues and says, being put to death, speaking of Jesus, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ obviously experienced a bodily death. He also experienced a bodily resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what that in the spirit means. That word in is the same word by. He was raised. The body was not left there. It was a bodily resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. He who died raised again. That's the proof that he was the sufficient sacrifice for our sin, that he conquered sin, death, and the grave. And then he does something, 19, in which he, so made alive in the spirit, he now went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, this gets peculiar. What did Jesus do? Why did he do it? So, after his resurrection, Jesus goes and proclaims. By the way, the, the, if you study that word proclaim, it's, it's not necessarily that he even preached something. It's in the subjective genitive, which just means his very presence before them preached the message. The fact that here he is, Messiah, having overcome sin, death, and the grave, alive, triumphant, victorious over sin, stands before them. That's the proclamation of the good news. It's the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. It's proof. Who did he go to? He went to spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient. Now, this is where you've got a lot of um, disagreement among men far smarter than I. So let me just come humbly to this text. In fact, I looked at my three greatest theological heroes. I won't tell you who they are so you don't get worried about who disagrees with who. But I will tell you this, not one of them interpreted this the same way, which was really discouraging to me. <laughs> which one do I choose? Um, no, I, uh, 
this part is tough. It's just like Martin Luther says. This is really obscure. It's hard to know with certainty what exactly we're meant to get from these verses. It's not hard to understand what we're meant to get from this passage. But I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here. Spirits, when talked about in the New Testament, always refer to the angelic realm. You've got good spirits, the ministering angels of God. You've got uh, evil spirits, the demonic realm. You've got the third of the angelic realm who followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God and were thrown down to earth. Um, which ones are these, good or bad? Well, two hints. It says they're in prison and they formally did not obey. What do you think? That's right. Hopefully there's three people awake, more than that maybe. They are the bad. This is, this is fallen angels. Okay, and it says they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. There's, some, there's something that happened where fallen angels were disobedient to God in the days of Noah and were uh, placed in prison. And there's some reason why Jesus is going to them as a demonstration of his victory over sin and death and the integrity of the gospel. And what we're wondering is what exactly happened and why exactly is he doing that? Well, first on what happened, let me give you, I would have no idea if this was all I had. We do have uh, three passages in Scripture, this one, one in 2 Peter where he continues to write on this, and one in Jude, which refer us back to something in Genesis that I think tells the story. So let me give you this on the screen. In 2 Peter, here's what we see. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, so yet again, now that could be talking about the satanic rebellion. It's not, because that's where he throws them to earth. In this case, he cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. There's a time when angels sin and are thrown into pits of darkness. That's exactly what he has said here. I know this is odd, by the way. Okay, just let me go ahead and acknowledge that again. All right, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah. So this thing happened in the days of Noah, just like he has already said in 1 Peter. Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay, what exactly is happening? Well, Jude gives us some further context. Jude has one chapter, verses six and seven. Read this way. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, we've seen this. Something happened. Well, he gives us a little more. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. You, you with me? So what was the sin of the angels in this day of Noah, which found them, fallen angels, by the way, which found them in pits of gloomy darkness, bound until the day of great judgment, that they somehow were involved in sexual immorality, like Sodom and Gomorrah. There was unnatural sexual relations. Yet again, super weird. And it serves as an example by undergoing a punishment to eternal fire. God's making the point in Jude, if he will judge them, then he will judge all rebellion and disobedience and idolatry. Okay? Now, we have something so far, the New Testament telling us there were angels in the days of Noah that left their abode, whatever exactly that means, that in the way of Sodom and Gomorrah, likewise way, uh, traded natural relations for unnatural, uh, participated in some kind of sexual immorality, and God was incensed that he judged them, that he threw them in this pit. And that's what's being brought up right here in the midst of our text on suffering. Genesis uh, chapter 6 tells the very brief story which these other New Testament passages give us an interpretation of. It says in Genesis 6, so now we go back to the days immediately preceding the flood. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now some believe the sons of God are the sons of the line of Seth. The, the godly seed. 
and this is just after Cain has murdered Abel. Some believe the daughters of man refer to Cain's line and, and wicked men, so that, that godly, the godly are marrying the ungodly, and that this which is committed in Corinthians is, a, is, a, uh, is something God forbids, that this is what incensed God. But others believe, because of what we just read in First and Second Peter and Jude, that the sons of God here are the angelic realm, and that the fallen angels... Uh, have relationships or pursue relationships, intimacy with the daughters of man. I'll tell you why in just a second. That's the lens that I believe this is to be understood through. They took as their wives any they chose. Obviously, this is way out of bounds. This has never happened since. It was uh, something that God judged cataclysmically in that day. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. His flesh will be 120 years. Why is God saying I won't abide in men forever? Here's what many uh, scholars believe, it's the way I lean, that the invitation of the fallen angels to man was that you cohabit with me, I am an immortal being, and you will have immortality. Why would that be appealing? Here we are, men for the first time ever, seeing the effects of sin. For the first time ever, man's dealing with death. And here are fallen angels saying, you come and cohabit with Lucifer, what did, what, did, what did Satan whisper in the garden to Eve? Eat of the tree, you'll be like God. What's he doing here? Inviting them to cohabit with him, offering them eternal life. Is that Satan's to offer? He's always stepping in, rebellion to God, taking, putting himself up as God who offers a false salvation. That's the lies of the enemy. So consistent with the ministry of Satan, from the beginning, here he is again. Stepping in, this is immediately on the heels of the promise in Genesis 3 that there will be a Messiah who comes who is the seed of woman. And so here's the forces of Satan trying to tempt the seed of woman to cohabit with evil in order to corrupt the seed. It's the plan of Satan to thwart the integrity of the gospel. That's the goal. It's attractive to man because he, can, he thinks he can shortcut death to life. And so it goes on, and also afterwards, sons of God came into the daughters of man. They bore children to them. Again, this would be leaving their uh, proper abode. This would be uh, sexual immorality uh, of unnatural relationships. These were the, and they produced an offspring um, that were men of renown. They were giants, legendary, uh, uh, angelic, human offspring. In fact, when the Israelites in Numbers went into the land, they saw giants, and they said they look like the Nephilim, the race of old, back when angels came to men. Okay, that's super weird, all right? Just, I just acknowledge that before you. This is an unusual text. It's very sci-fi. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't fully comprehend how that happens, but I think that's the context of what's happening. Peter is making a point that here's Christ who suffered in our place, made alive. Here's Christ who went and by the very nature of his conquering of sin, death, and the grave, appeared to those spirits. What was their goal? What, what, what did they try to do? Thwart the integrity of the gospel. And Christ presents himself. Here he is, seed of woman, having crushed the head of Satan. The first thing that you got to hold to as a believer in times of suffering is the integrity of the gospel is sure. There's nothing Satan can do to thwart 
the purposes of God in your life for his glory and your good. Nothing he can do. He has thrown the kitchen sink at Christ, and Christ prevailed. He proclaimed victory. That victory is meant to be the source of comfort for you and I in suffering. That victory is ours. There's nothing that Satan or the rulers, authorities or principalities, forces of evil, spirits can do. Victory is ours. And that's what Peter is saying. He went and proclaimed the spirits because they did not obey in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now understand, that's a 120-year project where Noah is building an ark out of wood to endure that which he has never seen or experienced, rainfall. Can you imagine? They've never seen rain. It's going to rain. What is that? It's going to be water falling from the sky. What? And he's got to build an ark, and everybody's going, what are you doing? I'm building a ship. Why? Water's going to come from the sky and fill the earth. Can you imagine the scoffing and the mocking and the suffering that he had to endure for 120 years as God's patience endured for the sake of the testimony of Noah to impact people with the good news of the gospel? That's meant to be. Noah is a type of Jesus. He's a type of Christ. We're meant to be a people who are willing to live in suffering and the mocking and persecution of a culture that reviles Christ as God is patiently allowing us to suffer and the world to mock and persecute until the waters of judgment come. And when they did and when they do, what happens? Noah and the eight, his wife and his three sons and their wives, they go into the ark and by means of wood, God brings them in to safety They are saved, it says in the text, through the water, so the waters of judgment rain down, and they are saved. Now, they're not saved by anything they did. They're saved because they believed the word of God. They believed the promise of God. And they were saved, therefore, by grace, through faith, and the promise of God. There's no other way by which a man might be saved. By grace, through faith, and the promise of God. That ark is a parallel to the cross of Jesus Christ. That again, by wood, there will be an invitation that you come to the cross and you be hidden in the finished work of Christ. And when the waters of judgment come, what will be the reality? By grace, through faith, you will be saved who have trusted in the promise of God. What Jesus declares to the spirits is, no matter what was tried to thwart the gospel, here I stand, victorious. The word is unshakably and unalterably and eternally true. And he goes on to say, baptism, verse 21, so moving from one of the most controversial verses in all of Scripture to one of the other ones. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, it's important that we stop there. There's entire denominations that state errantly, we can safely say this is error, that you are saved only if you've been baptized by water. They're taking this verse out of context. The the reality, and by the way, Peter's gonna make sure you don't miss that by saying you're not saved by the removal of dirt from the body. It's not some magic waters. We're about to have a baptism at the end of the service. It's not that the act of going under the water, that's not saving in and of itself. He says it's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How are you saved? You believe 
upon Christ, and because of the authority of his resurrection, the truth and the integrity of the gospel, when you believe on him, you have a pledge of good conscience before God. You trust on Christ, you're saved. Baptism is a demonstration of your salvation. It's an outward profession, it's a public proclamation, it's a step of obedience. So it's, not, it's nothing that's unimportant, it's critically important. So our Christ commanded, we do this. But what baptism does is it takes you and you stand amidst water. And he, he takes a moment to teach us on the baptism because it corresponds to the waters of judgment in the days of Noah. And then he capitalizes on the moment. He says, this corresponds to baptism where you're gonna stand in waters. And they are, there's nothing actually uh, judgmental about these waters, but it's gonna be as if they're the waters of judgment. And here you stand. And guess what? We take you under. You are going to die to yourself. And so far, we're almost eight years into the church. We have not left anyone under as of yet. Now, you might consider it an act of mercy. Send them on to glory where there is no more, mer- no more suffering. We don't do it. We say, no, God has purposed new life for you and that new life to be evidenced to the community of believers around you and you to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that's their now joy. They come out of the waters and it's a picture of newness Look what God, Jesus went into the grave. Three days later, he rose again. When I lay my friends this morning under that water, I'm gonna say buried with Christ in his death. And then there's gonna be a moment. What are we gonna do? Raised with life, with Christ to the newness of life. Baptism saves you, not the act, not the water, the pledge of the good conscience, you have trusted on Christ, and he will not fail you. Your salvation is secure. When we stand and we clap after a baptism, it's not for me who is baptized or the person who is even professed. It's for the work God has done, the saving work in the life of a new brother, of a new sister. We celebrate the integrity of the gospel. Jesus proclaimed it to the spirits that disobeyed. There is no thwarting the redemptive work God is doing that he has promised to do through me. Here I am. Anyone who pledges their life to me, who trusts upon me, you're saved by grace through faith in me. And baptism is a picture of you going under the waters and emerging victorious. And he finishes saying again, through the resurrection of Christ. Where is your hope found? Where is your victory found? In Christ's resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he didn't rise, we are to be pitied as the ultimate fools in this world. Because we have put all of our chips on the resurrection of Christ. We're all in. We're living in light of his victory over death and claiming it as our own and suffering for the sake of Christ. And we will not be deterred because he's alive. He, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Is there anyone or anything that can thwart the power and the plan of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No one, nothing. Let me finish where I started. Life's tough. Last thing my dad wrote me in a letter before he died, first line is, life is a struggle, and struggle is life. He had learned that. He was my age right now. He had learned 
that that was what life was, a, a temporal, fleeting struggle. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. Paul said, Timothy, anybody that desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Peter said, don't be surprised when Satan fires those uh, fiery arrows at you, Christ follower. Don't be surprised when the culture reviles Christ and the gospel. In this day, we suffer. But we suffer very purposefully. Through our suffering, God is revealing to the world his sovereignty, his goodness, his mercy, his redemptive plan. And we are, if we're honest, in suffering, we become really humble. We become really uh, malleable in the Lord's hands. We become very aware of our own limitations. We become really dependent. I know I do. It's when God brings to my knees that I remember, oh yeah, I'm not God. God, I need you. And through that dependence, he draws us near. And there's greater intimacy. God uses our suffering to draw us near to him. And when you're tempted to ask the question, how could God let this happen? I've been doing good for God. He says, that's exactly when you rejoice in suffering. When you're suffering for doing good. It's exactly when you rejoice. I promised it would be true. And you know that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I forsook my only begotten son that I may never have to forsake you. You're not alone. It's that time of year where the NBA playoffs begin. And uh, I don't know if you guys noticed the Grizz made the playoffs. That was my final point of application. I'm not sure how it relates to the text, but it's just a word of encouragement. Uh, unless you're a Warriors fan. But the Grizz made the playoffs. And uh, for my boys and I, that's exciting. That means for the next month or so, there's a bunch of games we're going to want to see. And inevitably, the schedule's going to get in the way sometimes. We're, we're going to have some nights where the game starts too late. Or we have uh, responsibilities or whatever that we're going to miss. And so what we will try to do is we're going to try to record those games. We're going to try to record the Grizz games. Maybe some of the other good matchups, but really the Grizz. And um, we'll do that because... We don't want to miss any of the action. And we will try in those moments to avoid knowing the outcome of the game because it makes it a lot, you know, it's kind of fun when you're, when you're in the, the, it can be, it can be fun or painful when you're in the throws there in a big game. But inevitably, I already know what's going to happen because it's, it's, a, it's a tried and true pattern. Inevitably, at least once or twice, we're going to have the game recorded. I'm going to be excited about seeing it later that night or the next day with my sons. And inevitably, I'm going to get a buzz. I'm going to think it's a text. I'm going to look. And before I can divert my eyes, it's going it's to tell me who won the game. It's going to happen. And I'm going to be frustrated. Unless the Grizz won, there'll be a, kind of a jolt of electricity that goes through. And so in such a case where I just found out the Grizz won the game, I'll try not to tell the boys, I'll get home and I'll play it cool and we'll put the game on and they'll be excited and the game will be going and it may be second quarter or third quarter and we may get down big. We'll get down double digits, we'll get down 15 points. The other team will be raining down threes, we can't hit a thing and the boys will start to panic a little bit. They're going to be going, Dad, this is awful, I've never seen a shoot so bad, nobody can make a shot, we're not driving it to the lane, Dad, the other team's making everything and the refs are terrible. And I'm going to say, hey, guys, just, just, hey, just hang in there on this one. Just, just relax. It's going to be okay. Ta- 
It is not going to be okay. Are you watching this? It couldn't be going any worse. This is terrible. The Grizz ought to quit. I'm going to say, hey, guys, I'm just just saying, hang in there on this one. It's going to be worth it. Just play it cool here. We're okay. And if they really push me, Dad, how can you possibly say that? And if they're on the edge of despair, I might be tempted to say, all right, boys, look. I don't know, I'm not going to strive with your spirits of rebellion any longer. I'm going to tell you something. In the end, the Grizz are going to win. I saw an update. And they're going to go, ha, oh, why didn't you tell us? Ha, oh, this is fine. We're good. And with a little less suspense, but a lot more peace, we'll watch that we, we're, we're licking our, we can't wait to see how the tables turn. We know it's coming. And sure enough, it does. And sure enough, we hit the shots that count. And sure enough, we win the victory. And we celebrate. I want to tell you right now, for some of you, it's second quarter, it's third quarter. Some of you, it's fourth quarter. And you're going, this is terrible. It's going horribly. It's not going according to plan. Where is the Lord? He has surely forsaken me. And if I could come alongside you with Peter, I think what Peter wants to say is, hang in there on this one. Just keep it cool. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. My life's in shambles. It's tragic. It's wrong. It's unfair. I can't go on. All is lost. And Peter's going, "Ah, not not all. Just, Just stay in there. Telling you. How can you have this smug confidence, Peter? How can you have this peace in the midst of what I'm experiencing for doing good? And Peter says, all right, I'm let you in on something. We win. We win. All the fiery darts of the enemy have been extinguished. Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison, victory. We win. You and I can read the end of the book with our own eyes, and in the midst of suffering, we can be still. Say, this hurts, this is tough, this is a tough season, bad quarter, and yet victory is sure. And we're meant to be a people full of joy and peace and hopefulness in the midst of suffering. Because the victory is ours by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, let us live like Christians. Not like cultural Christians. Not like carnal Christians. Not like worldly Christians. Not as those who merely claim the name of Christ. Let us live like Christ. Let us follow in your sufferings. That's what Paul prayed. He wanted to know the suffering, the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings. There are joys made complete that we might revel in the subsequent glory. And that glory is every bit as sure as today's suffering. And so gird us up by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let us rest in the promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And let us endure suffering even for doing right. That your name and the integrity of the gospel may be profoundly lifted high and multiplied in our day through our suffering. And we'll rejoice in it in Jesus' name. Amen.